Hello and welcome to the Reinforced Running Podcast. My name is Rich Ryan. What's up? Today we have a quarterly Q&A episode and we're going to talk about a couple different topics, about four of them. We're going to be talking about uh, some nutrition stuff, about how to maintain your weight and, and not lose muscle when you're putting on volume. We're going to talk about some hybrid racing shoe choices. We're going to talk about some hybrid racing structure of plans and what's better when it comes to either doing mixed work, compromised work, or building the pieces separately and really how you should go about doing that and and putting that puzzle together. And then we're going to talk about some goal setting stuff. So a lot of cool things coming up in this episode, I hope. And again, we're going to try to put these on quarterly. So we're kicking off Q1 with a Q and a, but before we get into that, I do want to talk to you guys about something that has been on my mind and it's basically about how the race companies who are organizing these obstacle races, they really don't care about the top athletes in the sport. And if you're paying attention to this really at all, uh, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise to you. And I mean, they care about the top athletes in the sport in terms of like a marketing tool, but ultimately the athletes are disposable to them. And uh, these OCR companies, they seem to think that their product is where the value truly is. And I disagree. The race itself, it does inspire people to get off the couch and to push themselves and do things that they might not thought was possible. But there is real value in compelling competition stories and the outstanding performances of the individuals. The same way that we will tune into like the NFL and the NBA, it's that we want to see what the human body and what the mind are capable of because it's inspiring. It helps us know that there is more that we can do and to push ourselves more. And we look to these athletes as like inspiration and just to figure out what, what we can do down the road. It's the, the competition can also reach the a younger generation of people. It's why sports are important to culture. And I believe OCR is no different. I mean, it's not there yet. It's not big the way these other sports might be, but it can truly impact this generation and, and the generations that come up. And these athletes, they're leading the charge from the front. They're the ones who are going to inspire people beyond the product. And we want to learn and understand how these athletes have gotten these results and how they've gotten to achieve more. I mean, that's why you listen to this show. That's why you listen to shows like The Running Public and Obstacle Course Race Media. I mean, you see the value in the sport as a competitor and a consumer. Like it helps you do hard things. It helps you dream big and achieve more things that you didn't think were possible. And I mean, this sport is awesome. And I know that you agree with me. So that's why I'm asking you for your support. We created the Obstacle Racing Collab last year, Torque in a way to help elevate athletes' performances. And for the most part, it worked. We set records, we stood on world-level podiums, and won championships. But we can do more. Things are just starting, but we need resources. We need resources to help the younger athletes who are coming into the sport race more often to gain experience, to catch up to those in front of them, and also to travel a little bit more. And so you can help these athletes get to these races and create these awesome, compelling stories to donate through to torque for these upcoming races and for this next year so we can help push the best in the world. Every dollar that you donate will go directly to the cause for creating better competition. So you can go to kofi.com backslash torque. That's ko-fi.com backslash torque. You can donate directly toward us. So if you're a fan of torque and the reinforced running podcast, you can show your love through either a one-time donation or you can subscribe monthly and you'll receive access to exclusive live interviews. You'll get access to our OCR map previews, which is myself and uh, another uh, pro on Torque, just going through the maps and basically telling you what we would do and just giving big overarching strategies. And you'll also get discounts on some different OCR training plans. So head over to ko 
backslash torque to show your support today. Cool. All right. Quarterly Q&A. All right. Hello. What's going on? Rich Ryan here. Quarterly Q&A. Q1 2022. Welcome. So our first question comes from Dustin R. It is, what are the best ways to get calories in to avoid weight loss? So this is a question coming from someone who's looking to ramp up their miles, put their volume up a little bit more. And one thing that you do need to consider when you start to ramp things up is that you are recovering more as well. The more work you do, the more you need to recover from that work. And there's a couple ways you can do that. Typically, people look towards sleep and their recovery days. Uh, but nutrition is, to me, hands down, the most important elements of recovery that you can easily account for. It just takes a little bit of effort up front and can be a bit of a pain because you're going to need to do some tracking and figuring out what foods are best and, and what kind of macronutrients you have. And I've talked about this a little bit in the past, but we're going to kind of go through a deep dive and really what that looks like and how to understand how much you are expending in terms of your, uh, your caloric output and how much you need to kind of take in. So that's really the first place you need to start is knowing how much you're burning. And I've made a calculator to help endurance athletes figure this out. I'll drop that in the show notes. And basically in this calculator, it, it just tells you how much to eat <laughs> straight up. Like if you run uh, 10K, you pop it in there, it'll tell you exactly what to do. But uh, things that you need to consider outside of how much you're running is your resting metabolic rate and your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is your, uh, which is called meat. So basically that's how much you are walking around and how much movement you do during the day. So if you work a desk job, your neat will be much less than someone who might be working as a healthcare uh, professional in a hospital who might be working or might be splitting 50-50 between walking and, and sitting and movement and sitting. Or if you're a uh, you know, more like a, a day laborer where you're working and you're moving around a lot and everything you do is uh, energy forward. So those are huge pieces that you need to know. Your, your resting metabolic rate probably won't change very much. Uh, it's just kind of based on your on size, right? So I mean, someone who is five foot 110, their resting metabolic rate is probably going to be uh, seven to 900 calories different than someone who's like six to 210. But for the most part, it's not a huge variance. So and that is going to be almost static is your resting metabolic rate. It's just kind of like a good starting point with how many calories you would burn each day if you just did nothing. <laughs> if you just laid around, you're still going to burn calories just to kind of exist. So if I was to use myself for an example here, uh, my resting metabolic rate with my NEAT and, and a 10K uh, run would roughly be about um, 2,769 calories. And from there, you just kind of have to fill in what you had eaten uh, with what you spent with food that you would eat. You know, it, it can be almost that simple to just eat straight up calorically what you've spent out. But I don't love that idea of just eating kind of junk. And you'll see that a lot of times with, I've seen that a lot of times, I should say, with uh, collegiate level runners or high school level runners who just eat because um, they're hungry and it's just junk food. But it really makes, it really can lead to athletes not 
feeling great if they're just eating, you know, freaking zebra cakes or cosmic brownies or, you know, butterscotch crimpets, if you represent tasty cakes like I do. But for the most part, you can do it that way and like it'll add up, but you really want to be able to uh, pick the macros that are going to serve you best in terms of your uh, bodily needs when it comes to carbohydrates, fats, and protein. So before we really get into that, let's back up and kind of figure out like how I got to though that number. And I use a 10K run as an example and a real common way. All right, so we're going to get into some numbers here. And this might be a little bit of, uh, of a slog of just information, but I just want to present it to you so that you have an idea of how to kind of put that this together if it's something that you want to be really dialed in with. And again, nutrition calculator in the show notes, but I'll explain to you what it does. So a good formula that is, you know, none of the formulas are going to be spot on. It's really hard to know exactly how many calories we're burning. And, and for the most part, this this calculator and these uh, calculations are going to give you a general area, a general area of where to aim for. And based on the feedback of how you feel, how you recover, and a lot of times like how what your weight is doing on the scale or what your body composition looks like. We'll give you those other ideas if like you're overshooting or undershooting and then you can adjust around it. But this will get you pretty close to it. You're not going to be off by, you know, 500 to 1000 calories in either direction, which is really something that we want to avoid when it comes to overeating or undereating to making sure that you're not losing weight. So the best formula for this is what I've found is doing kilometers that you've run times your body weight in kilos. So for me, I'm about 80 kilos. If I run 10 K that's 800 calories. So I would just add that on top of my meat, which is pretty low. I mean, I walk around some, I, but I mostly work from home. Like a lot of people, and I'm not really that active and my resting metabolic rate is around 1800 calories. We're roughly saying. So after the 800 on top of my run with the neat and armor, it's about 2,700 uh, 20, 2750 in terms of like for calories for that right away. So then when you have, now that you have your, your total caloric output for that day, now you can kind of figure out how to replace it with the foods, which foods you can replace that with as an endurance athlete. I strongly encourage protein being the first place that you go. It's not going to be the fuel source that makes you, that makes things go faster. Um, and those are fats or carbohydrates, which we can kind of get into a little bit more. A lot of times runners are going to be burning a lot more carbohydrates in their regular runs if they're not trying to burn fats. So a lot of times they lean toward carbohydrates. I mean, we got, we got carbo loading and people just really like, if you eat eating pastas and rice and bagels after your run makes you feel better, it gives you a little bit more energy boost. So they are very important in terms of how your performance and what's going to make you feel. But in terms of body composition and long-term progress, protein is really where you need to go. So I suggest that you take in at least one gram of protein per pound of body weight, one to 1.5 if it wants to be on the high end. If you're really cranking things up, you want to add a little bit more protein in there just kind of, just kind of as insurance. So we want to do this because your body run like the, your primary energy source is going to be glycogen that stores in, in your muscles it turns into to glucose that's how you uh, basically just move right and that is a limited amount of storage so if you really crank it if you're doing a lot of work your body can take the amino acids from the protein from your muscle from the muscles in your body and 
and through glyconeogenesis can turn that into glucose. So it can really strip down those amino acids and turn it into energy. And it will do that. I believe this is the case that it will turn protein into fuel at a higher rate. Like if you're working out harder, it will do, it'll take amino acids before fats. Fats are very much for a low level uh, use of training of like if you are going, if you're walking a lot or you're running really slow, doing a lot of lower things, or you've, or you've trained yourself to be more quote unquote fat adapted. And most of your diet is going to be around fat and proteins. Then it might be using fat more. But if you have a standard, uh, carbohydrate, high carb diet for an endurance athlete, you're probably going to use these amino acids first, which can really strip down that muscle. So that's why you see a lot of these runners being pretty gaunt, not very muscular and, uh, you know, kind of flat chest, not very much definition, um, just kind of skin and bones because they've stripped that muscle. They've done so much work. They've stripped that muscle all the way down and, uh, being light helps <laughs> to a certain extent, but being strong, I believe helps much more. So you're going to want to hold on to that muscle mass that you already have on the, you don't necessarily need to build it bigger, but you want it there because muscles contract and it, you're able to create more force and you can train that muscle for your activity. So you want to make sure the muscle stays on. So you got to eat freaking protein. So we want to start right there. And each gram of protein is uh, about four calories, not about is four calories is what we're going to kind of go off of. So right there you have uh, a, a decent amount. So for myself at 175 uh, pounds, it'd be 175 grams of protein. That's 700 calories already accounted for in just protein. Then you want to go into your fats. So this is where there's definitely a variable now because fats and carbohydrates are your two primary fuel sources. So Again, like kind of like with just semantics aside, we're going to talk about this as a high carb diet, a traditional diet, unless you were very specifically and consistently and committed to doing a high fat diet. Uh, I recommend doing the, a, uh, a high carb diet. It's just a little bit more conducive and it's just going to help you feel a little bit better. And then once you start playing around with things, you want to try a high fat diet, maybe you can try it now. But for, so we're saying that you can kind of keep your fats around your, uh, like a floor, like the lowest level that your body is going to need fats to help with its uh, other bodily functions. Um, just to kind of keep things running smooth, if you will. So that's usually around 0.4 grams of fat per uh, pound of body weight. It's a good place to kind of start. And then depending on how you adjust. So I like my fats a little bit higher, usually about 0.5 or 0.45. So for this example, I'm just going to use 0.45 um, gram, 0.45 grams of fat per pound of body weight. So it's 175 times 0.45. That's 78 grams of fat. So right there, I have my fat and my protein numbers down, and the the fat calories. Fat is nine calories per gram. So it'd be 78 times nine. That's 702 calories. So right there, I have my 700, and uh, from the carbs, 702 from fats. I'm at 1400 calories uh, already accounted for in my day. And that's pretty much going to be every day. And the rest of the, the rest of the calories are going to be made up through carbohydrates. So I have 
1,367 more calories I need to account for after the protein and the fat from my 10K run. I divide that by four, which is the amount of carbohydrate, which amount of calories in a carbohydrate. That leaves me with 341 carbs for that day. So right there, if I was wanted to maintain my weight, I would eat 175 grams of protein, 341 grams of carbs, and 78 grams of fat. So this works. This totally works, and you can adjust these numbers to help yourself gain weight, to help yourself gain muscle, to help yourself lose weight. It just works. So that is where uh, you really kind of need to start. And then a matter of getting these calories in is another story, right? Because it matters about how to get get them in. Um, for the most part, I would lean on some liquid carbohydrates I found is to be very beneficial to uh, obstacle course race athletes and endurance athletes, things like fruit juices, things like Gatorade, even, um, especially if you are putting more carbohydrates. in. so a lot of times these carbohydrate numbers can feel very high. And especially after you eat your protein numbers are going up. I found almost always the protein numbers make it more difficult to eat more food because it's very satiating. It takes a long time to digest and it just makes it a little bit more uncomfortable. So I break out that protein into five or six different meals per day, trying to divide that evenly throughout and kind of dosing that in some sort of cadence throughout the day. And then for carbohydrates, you can get them in however uh, you would like, but uh, don't shy away from the liquid carbohydrates and making sure that you are understanding that the demands for an uh, endurance athlete are going to be different than the demands for a, uh, a general population person who is just looking to manage their their weight. And for the most part, people are not very educated on the nutrition end of things, especially how things work and feel for them. So the general guidelines that kind of get trickled down from the top, it's like eat more whole grains and um, avoid, you know, white breads and, and white rices, things that are going to uh, mess with like your insulin levels and kind of spike your, your hunger hormones and things like that. But these are people that really, this, this advice is good for uh, just the people who are eating mostly processed foods and are not really health conscious or or nutritionally conscious. And this I found really can screw up an endurance athlete because they want to eat clean. They want to follow these guidelines. They want to do all this and this and this and don't want to uh, don't want their nutrition to hold them back. But as an as an athlete, you're using this fuel and it doesn't it's not going to affect you the same way that it's going to affect someone who's sedentary. So I would recommend white rice, white breads, uh, those liquid carbohydrates, even some sort of maltodextrin supplement to help get those uh, carbohydrates in when the days get really big. If you have a day where it's like 600 carbs, 700 carbs, if you're really cranking, um, doing a ton of running and a, or a ton of aerobic work or even lifting as well, like those days can be exhausting. So doing things with liquid carbohydrates with smoothies, these are going to be your best bet to really get in a lot of um, a lot of calories in without really cramming uh, yourself with a bunch of food. I mean, there's going to be a little bit of cramming food in your mouth for the most part, <laughs> because you kind of have to, and you just have to trust that it's going to work. Um, and another part is just making sure that you're on the scale. If it's 
not something that will be um, something where you kind of obsess over. The scale is a helpful tool to help gain feedback on what's happening uh, to your body through the training and through the nutrition. So you kind of have to look at the scale kind of how the way that you would look at a standard benchmark in your training. It's just a way to collect data. It doesn't really have any bearing on the athlete or the person that you are. And this really takes work for um, the majority of us is, is that it's not that simple to just take the number as a number that has no bearing outside of just this digit that we see with our eyes. Um, and it's just a way to kind of reflect on our efforts, both in the kitchen and on uh, on the roads and in the gym and in the mountains and things like that. So I would recommend getting on the scale, staying on the scale and, and kind of using a an average uh, over the course of seven to 10 days to really look at how, where the progress is going and not going day to day. So if the if you're if the scale is going up um, one day. And, but it drops way down in two days, the average is going to be a better indicator than uh, kind of chasing the scale day to day because it really doesn't matter day to day. And it takes almost three weeks to really change the amount of um, uh, body tissue. So most things that are going to change like day to day, it's going to be mostly water weight anyway. So you need to take that average, making sure you're knowing what's going on. So I hope that was helpful. And again, check out that nutrition calculator because that is really helpful. All that stuff that I just said, all that stuff I just droned on about, you can just punch your height, weight, and the amount of running that you're doing and like what your job's like, and it'll just spit out what what the what the caloric needs are with the macros on there. Very cool. I'm eventually going to make it a, an app at some point, I think. But uh, right now, all we got is a, it's a Google, Google, um, Google Sheet, which will do the trick for you. All right, cool. So on to the next one. This one's a gear question. So we've been, uh, I don't typically talk about gear that much. I know about gear. I know about footwear and things like that. But uh, for the most part, I don't think it matters that much. I think gear is kind of an afterthought and it shouldn't necessarily uh, lead or take away from any type of performance. It's it's almost like the last piece that you really need once you figured out your, your training and your nutrition and your recovery. Then the footwear uh, might be something that you really need to, to consider. But if you're going to do one of these hybrid events, it's going to be something that you need to, to figure out. Like, what are you going to wear? You want to optimize. You don't want to be out there screwing up. I screwed up so many of my first OCR events because I've always had this mentality around like, eh, I don't really need this footwear or like this other gear because it's the fitness that matters. And that's not true. And that's not true. I've had some very bad races and upon reflection, the footwear uh, was definitely part of the poor performance, but it wasn't the only part. So this question I've gotten a couple times is what's the best, what's the best shoe to wear for high rocks? You know, straightforward. What is it? And this is something I've been looking into quite a bit. I've had a couple of races and I've worn a couple of different pairs of shoes and I've been really kind of looking into it again, just to optimize things um, for race day. So when you're looking for a, a shoe for a high rocks event, there are four things that you should consider. It's the amount of rubber on the outsole, which is the bottom of the shoe. It's the stack height. So how much cushion is stacked under your foot from the midsole and the outsole. 
I like the idea of the heel counter uh, structure and construction, which we'll talk about, and also just the rigidity and the cushion type of the shoe. So it's those four things, and I put those in order of what I think are most important to least important. So the first thing that I always look at for a shoe for High Rocks is how much rubber and how that rubber is constructed onto the bottom of the shoe. So the reason I do that is straight, straightforward, straight up for the sleds. Those sleds, you need a certain amount of traction. A slippery shoe uh, will be harder to push that sled along and to pull it back. And I've seen it. You see it happen all the time. It's happened to me. You need a good shoe with good grip and good ground contact for that sled. So this might not even be something that would be uh, really anything that you would need for a Decafit, but for a different reason. Um, and actually we'll talk about Decafit after we'll talk about high rock shoe. And then we'll just give a little quick one on, on a Deca, on a Deca shoe. And I actually have specific shoes here that I'm going to talk about and what and why they look good and what, um, and why they might not. And basically just the most popular ones that I've seen that are in OCR and that are also in, uh, this hybrid racing space right now. So, Again, the rubber on the bottom of the shoe. So if you are new to the sport, haven't pushed that at all, I would suggest that you do get a shoe that has a lot of rubber, at least on the half of the shoe from the midfoot up through the, the toe. And generally these shoes, they will have rubber in that area to some point, but now these racing shoes, they really are being picky with where they're putting the rubber because they want to, uh, they don't want to add any more weight than they really should where something in a high rocks that extra weight won't really matter and it will probably be more beneficial to have the rubber than to, than to not have the extra weight on the rubber outsole so what you want to look for is a again a lot of rubber and also something that's constructed that will be durable sometimes they're like in circular pods which kind of peel off during training and something that is going to be a little bit textured. So these outsoles can have rubber, but they might be like slick and not necessarily ones to, that are going to grab the ground the way that we want it to. So structure. So we want it structured soundly. We want it to have good texture and we want to have a, a generous amount of it. So here are a couple of the shoes that I've seen. So the Endorphin Pro, they're very slick. Um, they're, the rubber is kind of spaced out on the like on the midsole it's not textured even though it looks like it'd be pretty good and also the last on that thing it's a curved construction which will put you on the on your toes for like the pull and won't give you a very uh, flexible way to to kind of pull yourself back i wouldn't recommend this shoe especially for the rubber piece the endorphin pro the vapor flies and alpha flies they have a very solid construction of the rubber on the bottom which i do like but it's not textured in any way. This shoe is pretty slick outside on the road. And if there's any type of wet, um, it's not like a continental rubber or a Goodyear rubber or any type of noticeable uh, branded or high tech rubber at all. It's just a piece, I think, I think uh, just to keep a little bit of grip from the ground and it's not necessarily sticky at all. Uh, a shoe that um, was popularized by Hunter McIntyre is the Brooks Launch. So this actually has rubber from the heel all the way to the toe. It's not plated. It's not curved. It is just a trainer. This is a lightweight trainer that is meant to be a little bit more durable for someone who's either running on the forefoot or the heel. An issue in particular is actually stacked a little bit higher 
on uh, has a little bit higher stack height of rubber just because it gives a little bit extra of a bounce and that's the way the shoe was designed was to be a little bit more bouncy of a, of a lightweight trainer without jumping to a crazy price point so the launch actually has a ton of rubber but you're not going to get a lot of the high-end performance stuff from from this like you would from a vaporfly or an alpha fly or uh um, this new balance rc elite or anything um any of like these super shoes that are going to be in that 200 plus price point and that brings me to the rc elite which has like these kind of like rubber dots which are almost like a turf shoe which i've found to be really beneficial and the way that i guess that they decided to construct this shoe is so that they can kind of have the full like forefoot has some sort of rubber construction but it's it's like pellets so there's a lot of cutouts but very short apart so it's not like they're not lugs but they're but they're not like fully rubber so i think they just took out some of those pieces just to save it on some of the weight but it responds incredibly well to that carpet. The only problem with the RC Elite 1 is that they don't make it like that anymore. <laughs> the RC Elite 2 is completely different and uh, you're not going to get anything like that. But if you can see something like that, that, like a turf shoe, that works absolutely the best for the carpet. And then uh, I just want to talk about a VJ shoe. Like a, let's, we'll just use the VJ Max, right? The VJ Max has a full length rubber outsole just for the protection that it needs for the trails but the lug height is just not good. The lug height is not going to be good for that get, getting ground contact. So you think that those lugs might dig into the carpet, but the carpet isn't very thick. It's not something that like you can really dig into. So it would just create less ground contact and would just be a little bit more slippery. And I know it's the best grip on earth I've heard. I've heard it is. And I've used these shoes, but I would not, if you're, if you're going to high rocks and your shoes are VJs, uh, just get anything, get a pair of trainers that will work <laughs> and like, don't worry anything that's that you'd run on the road. It's going to be better than any trail shoe on there. And so that's what I would really, those are some of the shoes that I would consider And any other shoe, any other like trainer, just regular everyday trainer for the roads that has uh, like heel to toe rubber on the bottom of the shoe on the outsole will work you know it might not give you that good race feeling that some of these super shoes will give you but guaranteed to have better rubber and better ground contact than a lot of these racing shoes which i think at this point would be a little bit more important for someone who's uh, just jumping into a high rocks in general and I don't know if those super shoes are necessarily there yet for, for that reason, for the rubber reason, but I'm going to still look the RC elite ones that are awesome. And I think that will be uh, the best one that we have. And you can probably get them on someone. I just got a pair off of a gazelle sports, uh, Michigan based running shoe, um, running store, but for the most part, they're completely out of production. Um, so take a look at the bottom of the shoes. Rubber needs to be, uh, Sticky, textured, and have a lot of it. So next thing I want to talk about is the stack height. And the stack height on a shoe is just how much foam is going to be separating your foot from the ground. And these newer shoes have really jacked up the stack height on things. So much so, much so that the governing body had to come in and say, okay, if you're going to have these awesome shoes with these this crazy compound foam, it's like nitrogen infused, super lightweight, foam that is incredibly bouncy you can't stack that up to like 50 uh, millimeters and just be like 
pogo sticks. They said 39 is the most that we can that you can make shoes for. And for that reason, a lot of companies are bumping right up to that 39 millimeter stack height. These super shoes and these performance shoes that are that high are built for the roads. And for the most part, road running is going to be straight with some turns here or there. Marathon shoes, which seem to be where a lot of these super shoes are focusing on right now. Um, Marathons in particular, you're not turning that much even at all. So like, and then when you're, when you are turning, you're not taking it very tight. You're not running very fast and it's just going to be about protection. So that's why we can make these shoes without too much rubber on the bottom and with a ton of foam, you're not, you don't need that stability around corners. The higher you're stacked up, the less stable it will be. But in a high rocks and a decafit, you're taking a ton of corners, lots and lots of corners. So that lack of stability will make you take these corners a little bit slower. Uh, it might not be as confident. It might be a little bit more slippery. It might be a little more slick. So that's why there's higher stack heights. I would really uh, advise against them. So when you look at it, 39 is the highest it can be. I would want something that's going to be closer to 30 and or under 30 even, I think would be the best place. Um, so you can still get some good cushioning on that hard linoleum floor but without sacrificing the stability that you need to kind of go around the turns. So the alpha flies are 39. That's too tall. <laughs> it's crazy too tall. And also the way that these shoes that are stacked really high like that to save on the amount of weight that goes into the shoe, they need to strip down the upper tremendously. So they can't make up with that lack of uh, midsole stability by adding like overlays onto the upper to keep your foot stacked in one spot because it would add weight. And with a racing shoe, the the competition, there's a couple things people look at and weight is one of them and you want it to feel light on your feet no matter how it performs. So they don't put any these overlays on top of them to keep your foot in one spot. So you just aren't there. Anything that's stacked really high isn't going to have good stability. Just straight up. Just assume that that's the case right now until the technology gets a little bit better, maybe. So Alpha Flies 39, those are out. Endorphin Pros right now are the Endorphin Pros 1 and 2 are 36, and the new ones are going to be 39. I would say these are out with those, and the Slick Rubber Ground, out. RC Elite 1s, 32. That's what I'm talking about. The new RC Elite, the RC Elite 2s are 39. Those are out. The VJ Ultras are 29. That's not bad. The Brooks Launch are 26. So this is kind of what we're talking now. These Again, this is a shoe that, that Hunter wears that is going to have a lot of rubber on the ground. It's going to be a little bit lower to the ground to be a little bit more stable. Heel-to-toe rubber. And then shoes like the Skechers, Go Run Razor, and the Brooks Hyper uh, Hyperion Tempo, they're around 24 to 25, which is also uh, going to be a little bit more closer to the ground, give you a little bit more stability, a little bit quicker, a little bit more nimble around the corners. So I like where those pieces are as well and shoes like the the sketchers go run and the brooks uh, hyperion tempo they're gonna have a more bouncy midsole construction it has some of those super foams where the brooks launch it is just a standard biomogo eva uh midsole that is going to be more like that traditional soft squishy um slower feeling uh, type of cushion instead of like that bouncy lighter um uh, newer compound so now that we're looking at these two i'm going to eliminate the alpha flies and dwarfin pros they're out rc elite twos they're out rc elite ones are still in the vj ultras those are out and the brooks launcher right there and i'm putting in the sketchers go run razor and the brooks hyperion tempo so those four look really good at this point the heel counter 
and the upper construction is probably going to be the the third most important piece and this is going to be negotiable this could be something that you don't really need if you've practiced enough and if you have a pair of shoes that doesn't have a strong heel counter or very much support on the upper and you're not slipping out of them if they're not falling off like i've seen people pop out of the shoes pushing the sled like they're just pushing it and then they're not into that heel secure enough and they just pop out of the back so the heel counter is just the part on the back of the shoe that is just going to grasp your heel. And again, a lot of times on these newer racing shoes, they're just so stripped down that they don't even put anything firm at all in your heel counter. And if you like tap it with your fingers, like the heel will just collapse. Uh, like the Nike, like the Alpha Flies, they put a little bit of foam on the inside of the shoe and no other hard heel counter there, just a way to kind of help keep that sh- your your like snug around your heel just so it doesn't move just the littlest bit please start pushing a sled most likely you're gonna pop out of that or it's gonna move move a little bit and anything that has a real light heel counter i would be really cautious about about trying some of some of those um if some of the new shoes that pop up i would be really hesitant to 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 bring those out on race day. If you do get something, make sure you're pushing the sled in it before um, and running around some corners and making sure that you're not popping out of the shoe, that that they're in a good spot. And then in terms of rigidity and cushioning, so this is something that is going to be more of an experiential feel, like what you like the ground to feel like underneath. So this is, I, I don't put this very high in terms of importance for what is going to help your um, performance on race day. It's just what you like. It's that's, that's pretty much plain and simple. So if you like something that's a little bit more structured, the, the Brooks launch will probably be a really good uh, option for you. If you like something that's a little bit more stripped down, something like an ultra or something that's gonna be a little bit more flexible, it's really just going to come down to personal preference for, for that. So in summation, I would say right now, the typical super shoes that are on the market, I don't love. I don't love them for a high rocks event. Outside of the RC Elite ones, which again, don't exist in production, which again has 32 uh, millimeters of stack height. I think it's about an eight millimeter drop. I think it has, no, that the pellet construction for the rubber on the bottom is awesome. It's like a turf shoe. It didn't necessarily resonate or translate very well to the marathon and at the price point that it was uh it looks like it seemed like new new balance needed to really jack up the foam on it to make it more of an alpha fly competitor than more its own standalone feel of a shoe which is unfortunate because it's a great shoe for high rocks but we don't have a high rocks shoe right now but i would say that's probably the only super shoe that i would take out into the high rocks arena i think we're calling arena deca fits are definitely arenas high rocks i'd probably not call them arenas but i don't know i don't know what what nomenclature we're using for high rocks as of right now but i think that would be that's the only super shoe i would use then i would want something that's going to be a little bit more lightweight have a a shoe midsole compound that is that is similar to the super shoes and what makes super shoe typically is going to be that really soft newer compound every race company has it that's like uh nitrogen infused so it makes it a little bit lighter uh 
and much more bouncier than your uh, standard EVA. So I would look for a shoe that has something like that, like the the Brooks Hyperion Tempo, which has a super foam without a plate, and also the Skechers Go Run Razor that doesn't have a plate as well. For those, for both of those, I'm not exactly sure how the rubber uh, works. The the Go Run Razors that works okay, they're not that durable through training, um, but they would work really well. It's a good soft shoe, and it's going to be a little bit bouncier. It's going to be a bit more of a race feel. And then outside of that, I think any typical road trainer would do the trick. It's going to have a lot of rubber on the bottom. And if you're not too concerned about having it be like this fast racy feeling shoe, then it's not going to matter that much when really this race is, you know, 30 plus minutes of running 30 plus minutes of station work. The footwear will feel good here and there, but it's not like, but you'll, you'll be fine running in whatever the Brooks launch, Asics, Nimbus, uh, Hoka's I don't think I would wear. I'd wear something that would just be more flat, like a traditional, like something like a Saucony Triumph, something that's going to have cushions. It's going to be a little bit more structured. Uh, it's going to be familiar. Uh, it's going to have that rubber on the bottom for durability purposes. One thing I would say is that I would, I would have a shoe that is just for the event. So not, I wouldn't have my trainer and then my racer. If like, if you choose to race in a standard road shoe, I would have one exclusively for the event just to make sure that the rubber on the bottom is not worn down. It keeps that texture. It keeps it nice and sticky. Uh, you're not wearing the heel counter down, whatever. That'd be the only thing if you choose to go with a standard trainer. One thing that I am increasingly interested in are these super shoes. They are now turning into, uh, so right now, like I said, the marathon has been the focus of these shoes. So the stack heights are really high and they don't need to be as light or as nimble or as stable. But now, since it seems like these companies are just knocking those out of the park, they're moving their uh, development into 5K and 10K racing shoes. So they're using that same type of technologies with the super foam and the plates in the, in the super foam midsoles, and then stripping it down a little bit more to make it a little bit lighter. They're dropping the stack height for the same reasons to increase stability. So a couple of shoes that I'm definitely looking at uh, in 2022 are the Adidas Takumi-san 8. They're 33 milliliters. They have millimeters of stack height foam. They have energy rods in there. Rubber looks fine. I mentioned the Brooks Hyperion Tempo a couple times. I think that'd be awesome. The New Balance Fuel Cell Pacer is a shoe that's coming out. to be 5K, 10K specific. And the Nike Streak Fly, which is going to be a stripped down version of an Alpha Fly, more for 5K, 10K. So I think that's where I would go when it comes to uh, footwear and what it's gonna look like going forward. So I'm gonna make a YouTube video, breaking this stuff down uh, a little bit more simple, a little bit shorter, and just kind of give three or four really good recommendations on that. But that's kind of like the big general look at it. So taking a look at the rubber on the outsole, the stack height of the midsole, the heel counter, and just the, the rigidity and the softness that you are looking for. All right, great. So this next question is, what is the best cross training for runners? Uh, and this is a good one. The last Q&A, we talked a little bit about similar things for this, but it was more about how to build up an engine around it. This is more specifically, it's like, okay, what, what will we do if you want to improve your running? And when, excuse me, just had to take, take a little sip, take a little sip when we're, when I'm just sitting here talking, just getting a little parched. So just a couple things to, that you need to consider when 
when choosing a cross-training method, right? There's a couple of different types of adaptations that we want to get after in, in the sport of endurance, right? There's central and then there's peripheral adaptations. So your central adaptations are like your lung, your heart, your, your blood volume, your like all these different markers that will happen inside. And then your peripheral adaptations, those are the, your muscular adaptations. So what that means is that if you are doing biking, rowing, swimming, running, schemo, snowshoeing, mm, uh, aqua jogging, all that stuff, skierg, indoor stuff, they're central uh, adaptations are probably going to be about the same if you're able to kind of exert the same amount of energy, but your peripheral is where you really aren't going to be able to cross over as well. Right. So, and if you're looking at runners specifically, the thing that you really need to, uh, consider are going to be your calves because in the peripheral adaptations that you'll get from a lot of these cross training methods like biking or rowing, or like I said, snowshoeing or, or schemo, ski mountaineering, cross country skiing, it's going to be a lot on your quads, hamstrings, and glutes. And you're not going to get that impact on the calves. Um, most cross training is going to have very low level impact. So if there was a way that you could use your cross, if you could cross train and then supplement with doing some volume work with your calves, depending on what it is or why you're doing cross training. Like if you're just doing it for low impact, um, options, or if you're doing it for injury, or if you're doing it just for, uh, ease of training, there's all different reasons to use, uh, different cross training methods, but I would try to do some work on your calves <laughs> to making, making sure that, uh, you're getting some of those peripheral adaptations, those muscular adaptations that you need. So if it's like jump roping or doing some stair work, or even like the elliptical might be pretty good because that simulates the way that, uh, running is going to work, um, a lot, but without that impact. So if there is, so that's the best way that I would go about figuring out what to do for your cross training. So I would really lean, lean into biking. I think biking does translate pretty well. You get those peripheral adaptations on your quads and hamstrings and glutes. I love the rower for OCR and for hybrid racing in particular, just because it, uh, it, it's more full body. It gets a little bit of back, it gets a little bit more hips, um, some forearms, some grip stuff. So I think that that is also a really good place to go. Um, when you're working on those peripheral adaptations. So either biking or rowing is really where I would stick first. But again, if you're snowshoeing, if you're cross country skiing, I think that would be awesome. You probably get a little bit more calf work in that as well. So that's the main thing that I, I just want to draw attention to that. I don't think that there's necessarily a best cross training method for runners, but just know that you're probably gonna have a hard time getting those uh, muscular adaptations into your lower legs so that when you start to kind of build up the volume outside of the cross training, that that's where you're going to need to really pay attention to. Um, so you're not creating any type of overuse injury in your lower legs, uh, your calves, your Achilles, your feet, um, because you're not going to get that impact that you would get on with running with really any type of cross training, unless you are able to do like specific things like jump rope or something like that, like I said. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I would say, just kind of a quick answer on the best cross training method for uh, runners. I think it is more personal preference, but I'd probably go bike or rower. That's where I, that's where I would stick. 
and make sure you're, you're getting those calves good and right. All right. Quick one on that one. Quick one on that one. So the next question is from Robert W. It is training for high rocks. Would you separate the, uh, the different type of work or would you blend it together and make it more compromised style of, of training? So this is something I've been playing around with a lot and have been implementing into my own training into the, the athletes who I'm coaching is where should you spend your time? What's the best way to do it? My immediate and my general philosophy is that you should build these things separate. You need to build these things separate to build it, your, your floor higher on all of the elements and then blend them together. So I would say the earliest that I would start doing any type of compromised work for a high rock specific workouts would be 12 weeks out. And even then, I think that that would be a long time to do very specific compromised work. And the reason I don't love the idea of just doing high rock stuff, high rock stuff, high rock stuff is for you're, you're either going to need to get stronger or get faster, and then you're going to need to get better at the actual workouts. But if you're just doing the actual workouts over and over, you're going to reach a plateau really quick because you just won't be able to lift as heavy and you won't be able to run as fast. So therefore you won't get stronger and you won't get faster. You'll get better at that one specific event, but you're going to want to spend time building up those things outside of it. I would, like I said, 12 weeks would be the absolute earliest that I would do that. I prefer six to eight weeks of compromised work to lead into an event than doing 12, 16, 18, 24 weeks of just all high rocks stuff. And again, and again, just like anything, this does depend on what your actual needs are. I've found that the stronger athletes are getting into sport. It seems to be a lot of gym based or CrossFit based athletes are the ones who seem to be gravitating toward high rocks in particular, because the strength volume is so high. And that's already something that they have in their back pocket. And now they just need to get a little bit better at the running end of things or the compromise end of things. And just the intuitive way to do that would be just like, let's just do what do this event over and over and make sure and just see how much better I get at it. Uh, but really those have actually just spent a ton of time in zone one and zone two spots, quote unquote, zone one, zone two. So very low level heart rate work. And maybe with some longer tempo runs, like doing cut down runs, like slight progression runs, just fast finish runs, or just longer uh, aerobic style workouts that you could even do that with a blend of rowing and running and skier. And as long as the work is done at a low zone one or zone two effort. So I back things up to uh, make sure that you're getting, I mean, it's four weeks minimum of that stuff. I would prefer that to see eight, 12, 16 weeks of just that base build up of just doing easy work and maybe and and heavy strength work on your strength days and then seeing how that's going to work into the actual uh, event itself. So I would, so I know like events a lot of times can, and this is what gets tricky, right? Like, so say you have a 12 week training plan, you do 12 weeks of compromise work, do your event. You got another event. It's in six weeks. It's like, all right. And then, then what do you do more? Do you do six more weeks of the compromise work? Or when do you spend time doing that, that volume build, I would 
if you are planning on doing more than one high rocks in a season, if it's not just like one event, like a one-off, if it's a one-off, like don't really do anything. Just like show up, see if it, see if it kicks your butt, see if you like it. Don't change your training too much just based off of one, unless you're fully committed, if you're diving into it and you're like, this is definitely where I'm going to want to go. Um, then sure. But if you're just like, yeah, I've done, I've done this race done that race. Let me just jump into it. I say, don't really change anything. But if you are fully committed to it, I would take that first race of the year and just train straight through it. I would just do volume work and a lot of strength work and very little compromise, very little intensity work and just build straight through it. And then pick your goal race to have be 12 weeks out and then have, yeah, like I said, eight to 12 weeks of that compromised work in, in the bag and how that would typically start on the early ends of a high rocks event, uh, high rocks training plan. I'd probably put in a lot more speed work in those first 12 weeks, week one through four would be kind of more like 5k speed, 5k or 3k speed, some anaerobic stuff, and just more like mechanical turnover things just to build a good, a little bit of a foundation of speed, which speed up like fast twitch speed adaptations come through pretty fast. And then once we get a little bit of that, we can start to really build a bigger strength uh, workout piece on top of that speed for the next eight weeks or so leading into the actual event itself. So what that would look like would be very short work from week one to four, then weeks five to eight would be longer tempo things. And I like long compromised high rocks workouts where the intensity is going to be a little bit lower than what it would be in an, an actual event, but the volume is going to be higher. So thinking 40, 50, 60, 70 minutes of continuous work where you're moving at uh, an easy pace on your run and then an easy pace on your station work and just moving back and forth and really kind of staying in a constant flow of things. You really don't need your work to your intensity that high for this event because it is so long. Like it's going to be at least 60 minutes for even the best in the world. So for most people, it's going to be an hour 15, an hour 30, an hour 45, which is a long time. So you need to really work that long. Like you need to spend time doing longer runs, longer aerobic work, and then longer quality work as well without the intensity piece, because it's never going to be that intense. And that's why it's important to build up that specific volume work. And for those eight to 16 weeks, and also having a strength progression built out through it and not making your strength work part of your endurance work, that should be saved exclusively from weeks, uh, from 12 weeks out, or from eight weeks out, even even better would be eight weeks out is where I would say is where you start to kind of put your compromise work in place. At a point, I do believe that it does need to be blended. I don't think that you could just do uh, CrossFit Metcons and uh, threshold threshold runs and get your optimal performance. You might get better and that's great, but you'll never run your best high rocks if, if you're not doing the specific compromise stuff. So I really wouldn't even make that too complicated. It would just be like run a 800 to 1600 meters and then do 20 to 50 meters of a sled push and then run 800 to 1600 meters and then do a thousand meter row and just do that for an hour. <laughs> and then like, and that's it. And not really overthinking it, not, and not just 
needing some crazy CrossFit style workout with some sort of score, this and that, just make it straightforward. You know what the events are, you know what the event is, you know what the demands of the event are to line them up in sequence and just go through them and just amass volume in that. And then if you are on the other end of that, if you're more of a faster dude and you want to, um, get strong, you need to, you need to work on a, a big build of strength. So instead of those 16 weeks being long, slow running, there should still be long, slow running, but there should also be uh, very specific strength workouts in there to help you get bigger and stronger. And that should be built into a, a, your base, your base phase. So really you need to take a huge amount of base, no matter what, and just change the, the direction and what you want it to look like um, going forward into your high rocks training plan. So short answer, yes, you should split up your running and compromise workouts. And then six to eight weeks, I'll give you 12 weeks. If you really just want to feel prepared, probably 12 weeks is going to be too much of compromised work or it's going to get redundant and boring, but I'll put eight weeks of compromised work, very specific mixed stuff. Um, maybe only, but probably only once a week twice a week, maybe, maybe twice a week of compromised workouts, but I would probably even stick one workout still of just running. And then one workout that is going to be just compromised because it is an endurance event. The biggest station and the event is running. So you should spend the most time there. So I think only one time a week of compromised work for eight weeks, I think you're going to be good. Just don't go crazy. Just don't, just don't be a fool. A lot of times with these workouts, you can just go, you can just try to punish yourself in that. And that's not really the idea of that. So I hope that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. It's a, it's a good, good question. So that is it quarterly Q and a in the books. So hit me with a, any notes, any questions you have, you might want to be considered down the road. I did get a bunch of questions, so I do appreciate that. We'll cover that in Q2 for our quarterly updates. And if you want to check out the reinforced running OCR group coaching. We do have a link down below. You can get seven days free trial. There's a, a high rocks training plan in there right now. And there's also a, a DECA fit and things like that. So you can gain access to all of the training plan library. We have eight different training plans right now. And the library will be ever, everly gro growing forever, everly growing how, how we say this. And, uh, but you also get day to day, seven days a week of workouts, mobility work, strength work, um, straight up running progressions for OCR. And then you get all those options in the running training plan library as well. And right now we're actually running a deal on those training plans that you can buy. If you don't want the long, the, the month to month commitment for the reinforced training group, and you just want a one-off training plan. You want to look at it. You want to see, you want to put it into your thing. You just want something that gives you good direction on what to do. You can buy those straight off. And right now we're running a deal 50% off. Typically the price of these training plans are $79 right now. You can get it for $39, $39 over half off. So get that, that, that deal ends at the end of this week on January 7th. So make sure you take a look at that link in the show notes, take a look at the nutrition calculator, take a look at the, um, all those different things that I mentioned in, uh, in the, on the footwear set of things. And also the link for Ko-Fi, uh, to help support Torque, we would love your donations. Again, every dollar that gets sent to uh, Torque goes to the athletes to help them perform at more events, 
get them better training resources, get them to more events just to mix it up with the best in the sport because we need newer athletes. We need strong athletes. We need compelling competition stories. And that's what we're trying to do here. And you can help support that. If you listen to all the way to the end of a quarterly Q&A, you are a real one. I appreciate you. I'll talk to you soon.